Hey, it's Jamila King in Brooklyn. How is your Thanksgiving different this year? Uh, It'll just be my parents, my brother and I, not 25 people like it usually is. Maybe you can't travel. I'm not going home this year, actually, so I'll be staying in the city by myself. (laughs) You can't see your family, not in the same way. So me and my mother, we have to be in our house and just celebrate by ourselves, which is kind of disappointing, but I mean, it's for the best. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to get anybody sick. But you're still trying your best to feel the holiday spirit. Uh, We're both from Seattle and we're not going home. We're cousins. So they're adopting her into the dad side of my family for Thanksgiving. (laughs) While keeping everyone safe. And they just go cooking some food and serving some people who are homeless and, you know, who needs a meal. I'll be okay with that. Yeah. Just some of the people, Katie Kleinberg, China Cambridge, Anthony Urbano, Jillian Dorn, Isabel Evans, and Ingrid Noel, that our producer Molly Schwartz spoke to waiting in line to get tested this week in New York City. On today's show, staying safe during Thanksgiving. Here's what I'm not doing for Thanksgiving. I'm not going to go to my annual big Friendsgiving celebration in New York City. I'm not going to see any family in person. And if I do anything, it's going to be with maybe two or three people. And it will definitely be outside in the cold in November in New York. Not ideal. How has your holiday changed? Maybe you're going to do a Zoom Thanksgiving. Maybe you're not going to do anything at all. The winter coronavirus surge continues. We're bringing you two chats with experts on how to stop the spread and keep you and your family safe during the holidays. First up, here's something we think could be useful. A COVID Thanksgiving guidebook with Jessica Malati Rivera, an infectious disease epidemiologist and the science communications lead for the COVID tracking project. Our colleague, senior editor Kira Butler, spoke to Jessica late last week about strategies to keep you and your family safe. How we can all communicate better about this tough thing we all have to talk about. And her enormous project to track every single COVID case in America. Here's Kira Butler speaking to Jessica Malati Rivera. Jessica Malati Rivera, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you are an expert in science communication. What do you wish the government were telling the American people right now that it's not? Oh, gosh, that is such a good question. There are a lot of things. Uh, One, I think that we've been really missing some very specific direction on what we should do and what we shouldn't do. That has everything to do with, you know, the recent messages that we just saw about Thanksgiving travel. We've been needing those kinds of very direct messages for the last nine months. So it's everything from guidelines to what's happening in the data. And in the absence of kind of very clear and transparent guidelines and even reporting structures, we have to look elsewhere because it's not there from the government. So, Jessica, should people be celebrating Thanksgiving and the other winter holidays with each other? Yes, they should be celebrating Thanksgiving with some major modifications. Nobody here is saying we should cancel Thanksgiving or cancel anything celebratory. But what we're saying is when it comes to how you behave and who you are behaving with or who you're hanging out with, there needs to, it needs to look very different from years past. 
So what that means is no large gatherings and especially not congregating with folks who are outside of your household, which is a major deviation from Thanksgivings in the past for most people, but it doesn't mean we have to cancel it. A lot of people are trying to figure out exactly how to celebrate Thanksgiving and the winter holidays. Are there any strategies you'd recommend? Yeah, so I think right now the main focus, because we are dealing with a pretty significant surge in tre- in the data with, when it comes to cases and hospitalizations, is that we don't want people to be moving around, around much. So we know that air travel is high risk, even if some people find that to be questionable based on data that I don't think is very compelling. We don't want people to be traveling and we don't want people to be mixing households. So that I think is probably the easiest way to majorly reduce risk. If you are planning on seeing people outside of your household, which is really not recommended, um, to take things outside is going to dramatically reduce risk as well. To make sure that masks are being worn for the most part. I mean, if you're going to be eating, of course, you want to keep your distance, especially during that time. But if you're going to be socializing and mingling, masks on is going to help reduce risk. And if you're going to travel, traveling by car is a better option than traveling by plane. So there's there's alternatives to almost everything that happens when it comes to holiday travel right now or holiday uh, activities. And it's about budgeting how much risk you can have with the people that you're going to be congregating with. So how about this notion that if you just get tested before you go to a holiday get-together and you get a negative result, then you're good to go. Yeah, so this is another piece of information that seems to kind of like get lost in uh, the messaging. A negative COVID-19 test is not an immunity passport. All a negative COVID-19 test is telling you that is at the moment of testing, they didn't detect any COVID-19 in your body. And that doesn't really tell you anything about the future. Uh, what it tells you is you should be thankful in that moment and probably continue to reduce risk and have low risk activities moving forward. You know, testing is not a strategy when it comes to moving forward um, in your behaviors. It is part of all the things that we should be doing together, which is reducing risk overall. And that includes mask wearing, physical distancing, washing your hands, avoiding large gatherings and avoiding indoor gatherings in particular. I think one point that people are confused about is when to test. So let's say you go to a gathering. How many days later will your test be accurate, if that makes sense? Yeah. So the concern is that if you test too soon after high risk behavior or after meeting with a large group, um, then you could potentially have a false negative because there isn't enough detectable virus present in the sample. So the recommendation is to wait probably at least five days before you get your test. Between five to seven days is kind of the recommendation before you can know if you have been exposed after after an activity. When it comes to the holidays, this makes it especially challenging because it requires you budgeting time before and after travel to make sure that you aren't inadvertently carrying the virus. So it means being able to have enough time after you arrive to your destination to quarantine for five to seven days to get tested, assuming you get a negative test in order to then see people after the fact. And a lot of people don't have that time. There's a lot of stigma about having a positive COVID result, um, so much, in fact, that, you know, you might not want to tell people that you've been in touch with if you've tested positive. You might feel ashamed. So how can we start removing that stigma? I think we need to shift this to make it more about positive language. So saying what you are comfortable with, what risks you can take, what risks you won't take. 
Um, and leading with conversations about yourself versus conversations about others is going to help reduce the judgment and the shame. I always tell people that if, if people want to hang out, before you question them on what they're doing, tell them how comfortable you are with what you're doing and tell them what risks you have taken and that you won't take. And if you're positive to being really honest about being positive. I think that, um, you know, the conversation about bubbles is really important. And we've all seen all these different graphics that say, you know, your bubble is only as big as you think it is. And that's absolutely true. You need to be having very brutally honest conversations, kind of leading with yourself first and saying what's happening with you, what's happening in your community and in your bubble so that there isn't any surprises and so that people aren't feeling the kind of guilt and shame that they usually feel about either a positive test or even risky behavior. It seems like, you know, there are people have different reasons for not wanting to wear masks. Some people, you know, believe that it's a violation of their civil liberties, while, you know, other people might just not trust public health officials because of, you know, historical trust deficits. So it's it seems like you have to target your messages. Um, how do science communicators think about doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. It really has to be targeted. You can't speak in you know, absolute terms and assume that our country is monolithic. We have very diverse communities with varying degrees of access to information and also varying experiences that have caused distrust in officials and especially government officials. So there needs to be, uh, it can't just be from like a federal level. We need to be engaging state officials and public health officials on the local level um, community-wise to be giving very specific applications of public health guidelines to those communities because there are, you know, varying degrees of, you know, experiences of this pandemic. We have tons of data to show that no two cities experience it the same way. No two ethnic groups experience this pandemic the same way. So unless you're looking at this from a micro level and really speaking to people in a very, very approachable way, you're going to have a lot of missed messages. Are there particular pieces of misinformation, rumors, myths that you find are really pervasive and no matter how many times you try to debunk them, they just won't go away? Yes, I could list a number of them, but I think the ones that are the most damaging are just very um, unfortunate misunderstandings of data and misreadings of charts. And I think that this is another opportunity where the CDC really could have stepped in, but I think the the 6% thing, which now is like, you know, people recognize that when I just say 6%, that misreading of what the CDC meant by the number, the percentage of deaths that had COVID-19 listed on death certificates exclusively versus ones that had COVID-19 plus something else was turned into only 6% of people die of COVID-19 when really it was 6% of them, which should be alarming, only had that, meaning they're relatively healthy. There weren't other comorbidities, coexisting conditions or complications. And that should be alarming, not encouraging. And I think it's fed into this another another narrative of, you know, people are saying 99 point whatever percentage it is of the day are surviving. We should be talking about recoveries. But really, we're dealing with a huge amount of people who haven't even been detected because our testing is not sufficient. A just horrific amount of death and coming death because of the case surge right now that outpaces any flu season we've ever seen. And people continue to say that it's not serious because they don't understand the data. And that is so problematic. And it, it just is, I find it deeply hurtful to the communities who have been hurt by this, who've lost loved ones. And I find it very frustrating as a science communicator that people are misreading charts that are very simple. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. 
It was so fun. Thanks for having me. Infectious disease epidemiologist and science communicator Jessica Malati Rivera talking to Mother Jones senior editor Kira Butler. You can check that interview out and many more with top experts in Mother Jones's Pandemic Proofing America series. Coming up on the show, our next guest is the brilliant Peter Hotez, a vaccine specialist who can tell you everything you need to know about where we are with vaccine efforts, what we know and what we don't know. I have tons of questions about this. I know you do too. Stick around. Also, if you want to support the Mother Jones podcast, it's so easy. Just hit that subscribe button. It really helps. The Mother Jones stories you're hearing right now are brought to you by our listeners and loyal readers who fuel our work. Audience support makes up two thirds of the Mother Jones budget and helps our team dig deep on stories that matter. Make a donation at motherjones.com give to keep our nonprofit newsroom humming. Again, that's motherjones.com slash G-I-V-E. Welcome back to the show. So when will the vaccine be here? What will it look like? Who's going to get it first and why? And after months of abject systemic failure to deal with this crisis, can a vaccine really be rolled out effectively? Peter Hotez is a vaccine scientist, pediatrician, and dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. He's been working on a coronavirus vaccine for the past decade. Dr. Hotez, welcome to the show. Oh, so great to be on. Thanks so much. Happy Thanksgiving. And I'm sure, you know, you, like all of us, are pretty worried about the coming week. What's on your mind as we head into this long weekend? Well, we're just in such an awful situation now in the country. Uh, We're easily going to be reaching 200,000 new cases uh, per day, 2,000 deaths per day, 12 million cases, just one horrific milestone after another with no obvious uh, end in sight. So um, this is a sad time for the nation and it's probably going to be continuing, I think, for quite a while. I don't know if you've seen these photos of airports that are packed with people who are traveling for the weekend. How do those photos make you feel? Well, you know, when you have that lo- this level of virus transmission going on, what it means is whenever you see uh, any room full of crowded people, whether it's an airport or a bus terminal or a train station or any kind of gathering, you know there's COVID-infected people in there. And so there's going to be virus in the atmosphere, and this is going to be clearly spreading COVID-19 uh, further ac- across the country. And You know, the message that I've been trying to give with varying degrees of success, more failures than successes, is look, we just need to keep this together for two or three more months. Uh, Good vaccines are arriving. We now have at least three vaccines that we know work to varying levels of efficacy. We don't know the durability of protection yet, but we know we have good vaccines. 
keep everybody alive between now and when those vaccines really scale up to the public. We'll have the first vaccines coming out by the end of the year. We'll really start scaling by second quarter next year. This is not in perpetuity. We just have to have some discipline, keep your mother, your father alive, keep your brother and sister alive to get them to the other side, to get them vaccinated, and they will live a full and normal lifespan. And and it's a very simple message, but one that's been really hard to uh, enforce given all of the anti-science disinformation and rhetoric out there. What's the cost of Trump refusing to work with Biden on the vaccine and the coronavirus in general? What an awful situation the president-elect and the vice president-elect will inherit when they take the oath of office in January 20th. It's going to be a pretty decimated nation because the numbers from the Institute for Health Metrics indicate that 150,000 more Americans will lose their lives between now and a week or two after the inauguration. So 400,000 American lives lost, the same number of lives lost. And for all the GIs in World War II, we're looking at those kinds of numbers. And based on the horrible experience that we had with the White House Coronavirus Task Force all this year, and in the Trump administration, I, I think it's important we we take the control out of COVID-19 out of the White House and bring it to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Taking the leadership of the COVID-19 response out of Washington, where everything has been so politicized from our past experience with uh, COVID-19 failures because we've never had a national strategy. So I think the American people probably don't want to see a task force in place that resembles the old one. I think bringing it to Atlanta and having the center, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention lead the response will, will make a lot of sense and would be far more co- better coordinated and organized than it was before. I think that if there was ever a time when we needed a smooth transition, this is the one. Tell us about the vaccine that you yourself are working on and how it's different from the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines we're hearing about a lot in the news. And we heard about the uh, AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine this morning, and that's also looking pretty good. You know, all of these vaccines operate more or less by the same principle. They all work by inducing strong immune responses to the spike protein of the virus, the part of the virus that binds to our host uh, tissues and, and, and invades our body and causes disease. And so that if you can induce strong virus neutralizing antibodies to the spike protein, uh, as well as get some T cell responses, you'll have an excellent COVID nineteen vaccine. So you know, in some ways, we're lucky in the sense that the COVID nineteen virus, the SARS coronavirus type two, is a soft target, and so we now also have a vaccine. It's a recombinant protein vaccine that's being scaled by our collaborators called BioE Biological E in India, and they are uh, scaling up to produce one point two billion doses, and that's exciting because we've never made a billion of anything, and it's being tested in five trial sites uh, across India. So we're very excited because, you know, some of the high-tech vaccines, the two mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, it's, it's unclear how widely accessible they can be made for sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America and, and Southeast Asia. So we hope ours can also make a real contribution and may even come into the United States at some point as well. We've been hearing a lot about the challenges of rolling out the vaccine, cold storage, supply chains, stuff like that. When do you think an average American will be able to get a shot? Well, I think we'll start having the first vaccines roll out in January, and then uh, we'll be able to 
really start scaling up to vaccinate the population by second quarter of of next year. So pretty soon. And I think we'll have at least three, probably four vaccines in the U.S. Operation Warp Speed program to begin. I think the two mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, the AstraZeneca Oxford adenovirus vaccine and the J&J adenovirus vaccine. And if all those look like they're performing well, then I think by the summer, we could do pretty well in having a significant percentage of the U.S. population vaccinated. Monsef Slawi yesterday on one of the Sunday talk shows said 70, we'll reach 70% by May or even earlier. I think that's an aspirational goal. I'm not certain that we'll actually get there. And, and that 70% number is an important one because we did studies with Bruce Lee's group, not that Bruce Lee, different Bruce Lee mm-hmm. uh, in uh, at City University in New York. He runs a large uh, vaccine modeling group. And we came up with that 70% of the uh, U.S. population would need to be vaccinated with a high-performing vaccine. So it's doable but some of the stars have to align. Um, we have to get vaccine to the people who need them, and they have to be willing to take the vaccine. And unfortunately, we do have some surveys indicating that we may not get there unless there's some intervention. The intervention includes really putting out a full-on communication strategy, which we haven't had really for Operation Warp Speed. Operation Warp Speed has been a, done a good job focusing on the science and scientific rigor and uh, the integrity of the trials, but they've never had a communication strategy. They left it to the pharma CEOs who overall have done a pretty bad job in terms of how they're communicating. Let's talk about that. Are you worried people simply aren't going to take this vaccine? Well, definitely that that's the case. Uh, and we have to start doing something about this very aggressive anti-vaccine, anti-science confederacy or empire that's been created in the United States uh, over the last few years that dominates the internet and social media and e-commerce platforms. We really have to uh, address that in a big way and, uh, and, and, and actually begin dismantling it because so much of the focus right now is on, you know, fine tuning the message, getting the message out. And I say, look, even if you get all those messages out, it's uh, their messages uh, in bottles floating in the Atlantic Ocean. That's how pervasive the anti-vaccine, anti-science media empire is with more than 480 fake anti-vaccine websites all revved up. Some of my colleagues are are somewhat more optimistic because what they say is, look, um, even though that's true now, as as Americans start getting vaccinated and they don't see any untoward reaction, then more and more people will pick it up. And I, and I think that's probably true as well. Whether or not we can get to the levels required for herd immunity, that's a very high bar. And we can do it as, as a country, but it, it can't be business as usual. We That has to be a top priority for um, the Biden administration and, and for the foundations and for the vaccine ecosystem. And so far, um, that last part of taking down the anti-vaccine, anti-science juggernaut is, is just not in, in their DNA at this point. This is a pretty basic question, but will the vaccine be free to people in America? You know, I don't know. I'm hearing different reports. Um, some are saying a Moderna will charge, I forget what the number is, $20, $30. Uh, others say it'll be free, and those are the requirement, requirements for Operation Warp Speed. Uh, I don't know. Um, 
you know, I think the even if the even if it's not free, the price will be subsidized. I hope cost will will not be an issue. I don't think that's going to be the tough one. I think it's going to be more, you know, trying to get access. The the other there's also a logistical issue around the Pfizer vaccine because that one requires storage at minus ninety four to one hundred degrees Fahrenheit. That's going to be a problem. It's doable. You know, I think. The Operation Warp Speed leadership has had a lot of time to think this through. General Gus Perna, the four-star general in charge, and they've contracted out with McKesson to handle that. So I think this has been well thought out, but it's not going to be easy. But I, I do think it's doable. Remember, every year we do a pretty carefully orchestrated dance for influenza vaccines. Every, you know, starting in August. Throughout the fall, we uh, deliver 100 million doses of influenza vaccines. So, you know, we know how to and we know how to do this. It's uh, it's a little more daunting, but but I think it's achievable. And do you have a sense of who will get the vaccine first? Will it be distributed equally for those who need it most? Well, the national academies have put out a document with recommendations to go through healthcare providers and then frontline res- first line responders. And then in Americans at special risk, including older Americans and those with underlying comorbidities also. A lot of this looks like it's being left to the states, just like the rest of the COVID response. It's right now it's being left to the states, in some cases, local authorities. And again, I don't know, that's under this current administration. I don't know if the new administration is going to make some early course corrections and, and do things a little differently. That That's a possibility. Finally, any final parting advice to people who are trying to celebrate the holidays safely this year? Well, I think the, the, the really important message is right now, lives are being lost. That, and we, we don't have to lose any lives from COVID-19. What we have to do is slow or prevent any surges on our intensive care units, because that's when the mortality rates really shoot up. We saw that in New York and in March and April, we saw it in Southern Europe and Italy and Spain. And now we're seeing it now. We're seeing it in West Texas and El Paso and Lubbock. We're seeing it uh, in the upper uh, Midwest. And this is why we need to really implement pretty aggressive social distancing and, and masks. And the point is, it's not for it's not forever. It's not in perpetuity. We have a right-hand bracket on this now. We know that if we can get everyone to live between now and the next couple of months, we'll get them vaccinated. And that's that's the message. And it's tough because, you know, right now the epidemic is very much in the middle part of the country and it's mostly red states, uh, not exclusively Minnesota's not, but uh, mostly, mostly they're red states and people are still being defiant. Um, we, you know, we had that horrible story coming out last week, you know, of, of people whose, you know, last words were they think COVID-19 is a hoax. So they're not even dying with dignity. It's just so heartbreaking. And how do we reach those those populations. I'm, here I am in Texas. I'm trying to reach out to every conservative news outlet I can to kind of save lives now. I mean, this is not a time to be defiant. This is a time to realize that we are in an awful, awful situation. We are in a public health crisis. Don't do reckless, irresponsible things. Let's just hang on for a few more months and everyone can get vaccinated and live. Peter Hotez, thank you so much for joining the Mother Jones podcast. Thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, you giving attention to this issue. 
Peter Votez is a vaccine scientist, pediatrician, and dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Hi, my name is Will Peichel, and I'm an editorial fellow at Mother Jones coming at you from Washington, D.C. Right now, I'm working on a story that also features Dr. Peter Hotez, who was interviewed in the episode you just heard. More on that at motherjones.com. Without further ado, here are the credits for today's show. Theme music for the Mother Jones podcast was composed by Micah Barrick at Hearfilm. This particular episode was produced by Molly Schwartz, our associate producer, and it was mastered by James West, our executive producer. Additional production for the podcast came from Mark Helenowski and Jamila King. And as always, credit where credit is due, Mother Jones runs on the support of our listeners and readers. So thanks so much for sticking with us, and we hope that you'll continue to. That's it for this week's show. For all of you making sacrifices to stay safe, thank you. Know that you're not alone. Hopefully Thanksgiving next year looks very different. I'm your host, Jamila King in Brooklyn. See you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Mother Jones listeners like you who donate to keep our newsroom buzzing. Help us stay on the beat. Go to motherjones.com slash give.